messaging sort of has to move at the speed of culture. And I have not seen uh, a time when in such a, a short window, we had to go from, uh, you know, first of all, just be there as a brand and show that you care to uh, urgently provide uh, messaging on benefits of support and things like that to providing messages of utility and uh, highlighting benefits of your brand that are particularly useful to people. So moving to the utility and now sort of people are starting to look at uh, stores opening and things like that. So now what is the message about? Is it about recovery and prospering and prospering in a new way? Curious to know what industry leading marketers are looking to achieve in the ever evolving digital landscape? The How Agencies Thrive podcast by StackAdapt is dedicated to helping the new breed of forward-thinking, savvy, lean, and mean marketers win in the rapidly evolving digital landscape. Time to thrive. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Vitaly Pichersky, and I'm the co-founder of StackAdapt, and I'm the host of this podcast. Today, we have a very special episode because we're welcoming Rob Asimakopoulos, Chief Marketing Officer over at CIBC Bank, one of Canada's largest banks. This is one of our longer episodes, and we'll cover a wide range of topics from the idea that some products are being bought while other products are sold, and how to think about the marketing strategy when your product falls into either one of those categories, to insights into how CIBC's team uses media mix modeling to connect traditional and digital channels to understand how brand building translates into bottom-of-the-funnel outcomes and how it builds lasting brand that is defensible against economic downturns and competition. In this episode, there is a wealth of relevant insights for marketers outside of financial industry, so I urge you to continue listening. I truly think marketers in any industry can take away so much from this conversation. I can't be more excited to welcome Rob Asimakopoulos from CIBC for today's episode. Hi, and welcome to another episode of How Agencies Thrive, a Stack It Up podcast. My name is Cher Ryan. I am an account executive here at Stack It Up. And today we're joined by Rob Asimakopoulos from CIBC. Today's episode is going to be focused on digital advertising within the finance vertical, how data and measurement play a role within the changing landscape of banking and the generational perceptions of banking that affect the financial vertical's marketing messaging. Rob Asimakopoulos is the Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer of CIBC, as well as being a board member on both the Canadian Cancer Society as well as the Canadian Marketing Association. Rob has had a long career spanning across verticals such as automotive, CPG, and sports entertainment before finally arriving at CIBC. I appreciate you joining us today, Rob. I'm glad to be here, Cher. Um, just to kind of start off, I know that when we originally connected, the world seemed quite different, um, which seemed, I think it was about a month ago, and we were smack dab in the middle of following the shelter at home guidelines, which has since changed. But 2020 has definitely proven that things can change quite quickly. And the financial vertical is no stranger to that. So how have you seen the financial vertical undergo a digital transformation in the past two years, five years, 10 years? Yeah. How about this last few months, though? Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, over the past decade, the financial vertical and more than a decade, the financial vertical has been undergoing a digital transformation. That has been, you know, I would say at times uh, very quick, at times gradual. I suppose it has sort of followed the pace of technology in many ways. But what we've seen in the last few months is is something that I don't think any of us would have predicted. The necessity to change became uh, quite urgent in the last few months. And what was kind of astounding to see, at least in, in our place, is how quickly and how capably technology was stood up to serve people. When you think about people needing access to money, not getting the same access they had to some of the physical presence that, uh, that, you know, that banks have, we needed to move much more quickly than I think we were ever accustomed to doing. And what was incredible is when a government program is going to be stood up in, let's say, a week, uh, you need to get a form built. It's got to be right. It's got to work. It's got to connect with, uh, you know, with other partners that, that are fulfilling, fulfilling some of these benefits and, and it's got to be reliable. So 
what's what's really encouraging is to see like technology is complicated so when you have to when you stand up technology in any context you have to test and retest and things like that what was incredible is all these steps were done so quickly on such a compressed timeline um you, the tools are there now uh, and when the will is there it, it, the the speed of change is absolutely astounding and and do you find that you know, in the digital space, that was obviously such a, a massive, very quick pivot. Do you find that in an entire marketing mix where there is traditional and there is, you know, other forms of media that you can use to sort of reach your audience? Did you find that, you know, those forms of um, marketing media were also able to pivot quickly? Or, or did you find that digital had a different sort of um, nuance to it that allowed it to pivot so quickly? Well, I think, you know, the urgency that's been created in the marketplace forced everyone to change quickly. Um, you know, when we're, when we've been executing a, a broad, uh, set of marketing plans across all mediums. And I guess I found whether it was television or, or print and news media or digital, everyone moved quickly. Uh, trafficking, uh, you know, physical assets was quicker on compressed timing. And of course there was technology to help facilitate that. I think the speed of change everywhere was astounding and, and quick. I mean, even go to places like right now, uh, a small variety store will all of a sudden have a plexiglass wall up at the cash register Hi. within minutes because they had, they need to keep going. And, and now everywhere you go, there's plexiglass wall. So the speed of change isn't limited to technology for sure. What is obviously prevalent in technology is the tools and the ability to pivot are, are probably more present there than they are anywhere else. And do you think that, um, you know, post COVID, a lot of conversations right now are sort of around what post COVID, the post COVID era is going to look like. Do you think that, you know, the speed at which we sort of moved during um, the crisis, at least in the thick of it, do you think in post era that that momentum is going to stay up and, and what are really the factors that are going to help keep that momentum going? You know, um, the only reference point I would have is probably referencing previous crises. You know, or previous events that catalyze change. I think it, truly people are creatures of habit. So I think people will settle into, you know, more moderate speeds and, and things, th things of, uh, you know, being more deliberate, taking more time to think things through. I always say that work expands to fill the time. And so uh, an urgent climate will create a different set of circumstances than perhaps a climate where not, things are less urgent. And it's not even just about technology and, and change. It's about fundamental human behaviors. Like today, you know, you see people doing things that they never otherwise would have. You see people washing their hands, you see people wearing masks, you see people avoiding each other, uh, and you see people making very quick decisions at times with less regard for, you know, uh, could happen if this is wrong. I see a lot of people leaning into decisions quickly, mm -hmm. and I think it's part of the climate. Post-COVID, I think things will settle down, mm -hmm. but I think some of these habits will be enduring. And I think given the extent of this crisis, what will happen is technology will become more important because doing business out of proximity has become uh, much more of a, a concern for people. Oh, that yeah, that's definitely true. We definitely have seen that you know, in terms of like the work from home and the changes in way organizations are sort of keeping um, teams safely apart. Um, but during the COVID, uh, you know, in the thick of the crisis, messaging was such a, a huge concern across every single vertical. And uh, where it comes to the financial vertical, you know, messaging was, it might have been sort of taken on a different approach um, versus sort of the post-COVID era. And what kind of messaging was sort of important? What kind of things did you think about when you were you know, in the thick of things in terms of um, how you were going to speak to your customers. Um, because it seems like, you know, before then, the messaging was very brand related. And, and then during the COVID situation, it seemed like a lot of advertisers were confused and a little lost about how much to sympathize, how not to patronize. And so what was sort of important in the financial market to, to reach your consumers in a meaningful way? Yeah. It's a great question, and it continues to be debated. Mm -hmm. Messaging sort of has to move at the speed of culture. And I have not seen uh, a time 
when in such a, a short window, we had to go from, uh, you know, first of all, just be there as a brand and show that you care to uh, urgently provide uh, messaging on benefits of support and things like that to providing messages of utility and uh, highlighting benefits of your brand that are particularly useful to people. So moving to the utility and now sort of people are starting to look at uh, stores opening and things like that. So now what is the message about? Is it about recovery and prospering and prospering in a new way? All of these sort of, you know, I described sort of four different windows and each and every one of them has been relevant. Uh, there's a little noise out there where some, you know, pundits uh, start to uh, lob in, you know, their opinions on what brands should be communicating. Mm -hmm. But I would not listen to the pundits. Brands should be listening to their customers. Um, and if brands are confused, it's because they're not really, they don't have a finger on the pulse of their customers or their clients. It, the way we handle it is on a pretty regular basis, in many cases daily, uh, in other cases weekly, uh, getting our uh, getting a good understanding of what people are concerned about, looking at the trends of those things. Is there concern about financials trending down or up? Is there concern about health trending down or up? Uh, what do they care about now at this red hot moment? And the beautiful thing about you know some of the tools we have in place is we can pivot our messages. We can put out a message on our organ on our social channels organically, so our clients see what what the most relevant message is and what the most relevant benefit is for them today. So I'll give you an example. We have this um we have this benefit on our credit cards called Pace It. And, you know, typically to put an ad campaign together, it'll take a few weeks. Within three or four days, we had ads out there on CIBC Pace It and and emails to our clients. Why? Because uh this Pace It capability means you could take certain purchases from your credit card and put them on lower interest installment payments so you could smooth out your payments you know that is a form of deferral now that's something that you know we launched last year and anyone could do at any time but in this red hot moment that item became relevant and it was a piece of uh, a, a useful a service that our clients could take take hold of so pivoting on messaging to have utility using the digital tools that we had to put that messaging out quickly and making sure we serve them then and hang on you know you can't can't exhale yet because tomorrow <laughs> they're concerned about the next thing so uh, that's sort of been the pace of of um the pace we've been working at hopefully that gives you a flavor for what it is we see in the marketplace and how we adjust our messaging and of course the tools they follow and you know you can tell we have optimization that makes sure that the message gets out to the right people at the right time and you look at some of the diagnostics to see whether or not people are actually consuming that message because as soon as they start to you know soften on the message it's time to go and rethink what you're going to share with your clients interesting yeah and that kind of brings up a, a point about data right we're one of the biggest things that we've seen you know during this crisis was that data was shifting and and everybody in the industry was really taking a look at where this data was shifting and how it was shifting as well as why that was happening um, at a very nuanced lo level. Um, so, you know, when you're kind of speaking about these different financial products that, you know, exist and suddenly certain ones become more relevant, more important and significant to these, to, you know, your customers, your consumers who are now thinking, of, uh, thinking differently during this crisis. Um, and then, you know, sort of understanding the diagnostics of, of the data that was rendered from that and, and under, using that to sort of pivot when you're looking at sort of a digital media mix and you're looking at your traditional media and you're trying to look at everything that you're using to get that messaging out there, you know, how do you really sort of put all that together, piece it all together in a way that makes sense so that you fully and holistically understand whether a product, a financial product or the messaging is working? Uh, well, you know, that's a great question. I think uh, I believe that the best marketers make good use of a, a holistic data set that comprehends the, let's call it, they, they stitch a sort of a golden thread from mental availability to physical availability. Uh, those those uh, brands and companies who are sort of vertically integrated that that own, you know that own their own distribution network have a wealth of data that they can use to determine whether or not a message way at the top of the funnel led to an outcome at the bottom of the funnel. 
Uh, I think the mistake, uh, there are a couple of mistakes people make when it comes to data. Uh, first of all, is they only look at one part of the picture. So for example, if you only look at your upper funnel data, like, you know, whether or not someone recalls your television ad or engaged with a social post and neglect whether or not they actually change their behavior or change their point of view on you, you're not seeing the whole picture. So it's equally important to make sure a message or a stimulus was received, accepted, and um, understood by your customer as it is to understand was their journey to an ultimate, you know, purchase or outcome was it seamless and did it, did it happen as you would expect? Uh, people make mistakes on data uh, uh, by only looking at lower funnel data, mm-hmm. looking at clicks, looking at actions, and assuming that that's the whole universe. What we, what we do is we we use media mix modeling to make sure that we understand the intersection between traditional and digital media and the effect of all of our media mix on outcomes and sales. So to oversimplify things, we know that for certain products, we need to use, uh, we need to use advertising more than for other products. Some products are bought, some are sold. Uh, some of our services are, are consumed in a way that um, means they need to hear about them first. So we use media mix modeling to tell us to a very high statistical correlation, is there an outcome from this media and what media mix produces the most, uh, the best and most efficient outcome. So we use that at a strategic level. You can't do media mix modeling every day. We use that to set plans at a strategic level. And then on a daily basis, we use digital metrics to determine whether or not, you know, we're, we're performing as we should. So, you know, for example, you'll keep guardrails around your cost per acquisition for uh, some of your product advertising and you look to stay within those guardrails and you make sure that you you link that to what what you have determined in your media mix model to be optimal performance so that's how we use it and but i think i can't stress enough that um people tend to fall into these rabbit holes to say look at all the clicks and engagements i got it was a successful campaign or look at the recall i had in a tv ad it was a successful campaign or Oh, my cost per acquisition was really low, so it was a successful campaign. That's not the whole picture. And uh, that's where I find the mistake happens. Because look, when digital data uh, became so readily available, we fell so in love with it, we ignored what was happening in the world around it. And so I can't stress enough how important it is to look at everything. So, you know, you were kind of mentioning that... um you were referring to sort of this low funnel activity, you know, the best, the, the most clicks, the most conversions. And, um, you know, oftentimes when, you know, when you're, when you're buying and, and trading sort of on the, on, on digital media, that, that is often from one perspective, sort of the, the keys to success. And, and I think it's because there's a, there's a huge emphasis on return on ad spend and, you know, how, how exactly are products being sold given you know what we're investing in the media um and in cases where brand awareness and and brand based marketing versus product selling um you know those two different marketing activities exist in the same world um, and attribution seems to be sort of this esoteric um experience how how do you really sort of justify the return on ad spend when attribution is is really challenging at a at a very upper funnel brand marketing level yeah a good question um there is a wealth of uh, secondary data and you can collect primary data yourself to do this. Um, there's a group in the UK called the Institute of Practitioners in Advertising. Um, there's a great study that was done um, by the, that organization called The Long and the Short of It. They collected data from you know, thousands of companies globally and they were able to prove uh, that brands that leveraged very balanced media plans with strong use of good storytelling mechanisms like television and print, uh, balanced very well with the digital uh, media mix. Um, Brands that had 60% of their messaging or their advertising selling the brand, selling benefits, uh, not trying to close them, not trying to push them in the funnel, but literally selling brands and benefits, they had higher market share 
they had more favorable pricing, and they were more profitable. Um, we ourselves, through our media mix modeling, have determined very similar uh, proportions. So a healthy uh, set of messaging to give your brand attractiveness and mental availability to tell customers why you're here and what you do is, 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 is paramount. Brands that overcorrect to sort of buy now, convert now kind of messaging uh, underperform dramatically. So again, when I talked about uh, performing media mix modeling, we collect all that data and can determine uh, what the efficient frontier is of our spend. So we know where we get the maximum ROI at what level of total spend. We also know which products respond better to advertising, which don't. We know to a high statistical correlation how much business we get, how many account opens we get from different uh, forms of advertising. By knowing that and knowing the profitability of your business, we can put a very fine point on the return on media spend, return on ad spend. So it comes down to data. Now, people will often, if they don't have that kind of data, they'll measure sort of circumstantial outcomes. You know, I'll put out a campaign in August and my sales in August and September were up, you know, 4% versus a year ago. And so I'll attribute that to the advertising. Media mix modeling and doing some, doing sort of multivariate uh, regression analysis is necessary because you need to factor out economics. Uh, you need to factor out seasonality. You need to factor out pricing anomalies. You need to factor out offers that may have been in play. Mm -hmm. So you got to factor them out to get a pure read on your media uh, in order to get a good return on ad spend uh, data point. Right. And you, you, have, you were, you know, you briefly touched on sort of um, identifying a brand and its values to customers, really pinpointing sort of what makes your brand your brand um, in the market. And so, you know, value is obviously key for customers. Everybody's always looking to figure out, you know, how this is going to serve me. If I'm going to pay for it, I want to know what I'm getting in return. Um, you know, when you're looking at the financial vertical, there's a lot of regulatory things that are established in that vertical specifically um, that can make sort of, uh, you know, being a, a differentiator a little bit challenging. So how does data sort of help you understand, you know, where your value is differentiating yourself in the, the competitive landscape? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know if data helps me um, establish differentiation in the marketplace among financial institutions. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a big believer in brands, whether anywhere, because it's not just financial institutions that are undifferentiated. It's actually virtually every category that does not have a patent or a specific product attribute yeah. that is unique. Yeah. You know, if you look at look at something as simple as the smartphone category, ostensibly, before you actually experience any of those things, if you list the qualities of an iPhone and an Android phone, they're virtually identical. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They, 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 they are undifferentiated. Uh, if you list the qualities of a, a one burger joint to the next burger joint, they're virtually identical. So how do you differentiate yourself? Well, part of it is experiential. Mm -hmm. So it looks, feels, smells, tastes differently, uh, how you serve it. Um, the biggest thing you can do to differentiate yourself in the marketplace is to establish uh, a distinctive brand identity that's rooted in a purpose. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in brands that, that uh, are very clear on who they are, why they exist, and the role they play in people's lives. So uh, there's a reason why Nike stands above many other shoe brands because they have they have been a purpose based organization. Nike believes that uh, if you have a body, you're an athlete, and their purpose is to inspire and enable the athlete in all of us. So you know, if you look at Lloyd's Bank in the UK. They're very clear. They their purpose is to help Britain prosper. Mm -hmm. A lot of brands state their purpose, but uh, not many of them are as mind opening as the the two brands I just described. Uh, Walmart's purpose is to help you save money so that you live better, and so that's how you distinguish yourself by actually being very clear about the role you play in people's lives. Now, of course, when you road test that, you road test. 
uh, all kinds of messages and stimuli and things like that, that will or will not resonate. That's where data comes to play. So, you know, in the advertising space, you have to plan, do, check and act. You have to, you know, plan it well, make sure you understand your, your client's mindset. You execute, you check and make sure that it got through that it was understood, that main messages were understood, that you had a reputational bump, and you act to countermeasure if you see any of those metrics swaying off of your, your objectives going in. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned sort of the Apple, you know, Android, I guess, brand war <laughs> that exists, because it, it truly, you know, people who are Apple fans are almost diehard Apple fans, and people who are Android fans are diehard Android fans. And, you know, the crossover and the switching over is, you know, very oftentimes minimal, um, unless, like you said, that there is something that is a massive differentiator in the market. But oftentimes, you know, in that in that scope of things, we're seeing, you know, an extra camera, an extra zoom, a portrait mode, right? And they're just kind of competing against each other, sort of climbing through their marketing. And so when you're looking at, you know, what this really seems to highlight to me anyways, is this, uh, this idea of brand loyalty and, and sticking with a brand that really means something to you. And, and banking oftentimes does have a, a very personal um, experience with people. It has a very emotional experience for people because it's their money, right? Uh, the black and white of their money. And it's not just transactions that you make. It's, it's really about an entire level of trust. It's an entire level of what that bank stands for and how you stand with them and how the bank stands with you, frankly. Um, so when you're looking at sort of generating this, this loyalty and you have an existing customer base, oftentimes in, in a generational perspective, um, you know, young people, you'll see that because they have, you know, not a lot of financial um, independence and they're sort of developing that financial investment in themselves and their future, they're they're more willing to be, you know, switching and, and their brand loyalty hasn't yet been established. And then you have, you know, sort of the older demographics who are very brand loyal because they've already invested in their bank. They've had a lifetime to grow and develop and, and build their future with that bank. So, you know, how do banks really, um, you know, keep that brand loyalty and and speak to those different generations that are looking at um, banking in through their generational perspective? Yeah, you know, there's so many things uh, that came to mind as you were as you were describing loyalty mm-hmm. in that context. As far as I'm concerned, you either have fans or hostages. Okay. <laughs> wow. And. Hostages are people who are so uh, invested and, you know, can't be bothered to move or have too much invested with you and have been there a long time and why bother, but I'm still not happy. You know, Mm -hmm. fans are people who are there because at every step along the way, even when you had to say no, you were really nice to them. You respected them, you know, and you know, of course, you know, when you look at a new generation of consumers, you know, you can point in some cases to a different mindset, which is like, you know, they, you know, some people make the mistake of calling, you know, a younger generation of millennials and Gen Z uh, disloyal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, 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 I dispute that, you know, I dispute that. I think that's a lot of, you know, boomers and Gen Xers looking at the youth of today saying, why can't you be more loyal? Uh, they have choice. Right. And when you have choice, you don't have to stick to an experience that doesn't fill, meet your needs. Um, it's not that they're disloyal. It's that if, if I don't like this, then I'm going to go over here. Uh, and by the way, to unravel a banking relationship, which is basically a deposit account, a credit card, mm-hmm. is not that hard to do. Now, you look at a more mature um, you know, banking client who might have investments, mortgage, couple of credit cards, several bank accounts, joint accounts and things like that. That's a pretty intertwined relationship. So now you've got to look at that franchise and you go, what do I have here? Do I have hostages or do I have fans? So a lot of, a lot of brands, including ours on a very regular basis, measure whether their clients are satisfied or promoters. And if you're a great brand, you make sure you dig into things like, what are they complaining about? Or which part of this experience really sucks? And what can I fix? And the good ones just make that big list of things and they start chipping away. Hey, guess what? Um, 
you know, for example, it could be a service gesture that is very rigid and you'd say, well, no, you don't qualify for this credit. Goodbye. Uh, so you could say it that way, or you could say, um, let's work on a plan to get you where you want to get to. If not today in the future, those are two different service gestures. Uh, what are people complaining about? So sometimes many of the things people complain about in banking are fees. Um, so what are you going to do about it? Are you going to help people understand the fee better? Because that's often a great way to eliminate complaints about fees is sometimes people, uh, we've seen in our research, people will pay a fee if they know they're getting value back. But if they don't understand the value and they get, uh, they incur a fee, they ask questions. Uh, maybe uh, in other cases, people will complain about, you know, wait times on a, on a, you know, on a call center. Well, do you have a message on the IVR that provides enough information for somebody that they could actually self-select uh, a solution or understand, um, you know, why they're why they're on hold? So I, I think you know uh, when it comes to uh, brand loyalty, it's it's not big grand gestures; it's small gestures. It's those little daily things that you do to make them fans. I, I tell you, I use this analogy all the time. Brand mm -hmm. relationships are like human relationships. You don't make friends and you don't build relationships with other people because they did one wild thing to you or they incentivized you to. Your best relationships, I'm certain, are ones where those daily little moments of truth are always fulfilled uh, with, are, are, are the most fulfilling um, things for you and that person you engage with. It's no different from brands. In fact, relationships, uh, are are built in the same way. Wow, that's I never really thought about it that way actually. I I've, I've never really thought about a brand messaging being akin to an actual human to human relationship. Oftentimes brands are are seen as over there or they're seen as sort of this entity as opposed to almost like a person. Um which when you think about it messaging and and is really just coming from you know a bank is 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 kind of like someone speaking to you as a person but i guess what that then makes me wonder is you know with the different generations the delivery of that message is very different uh, because you see sort of the older generation you know there's an idea anyways that the older generation wants to continue with retail banking they want to be in store. They want to go see someone face to face. They want to have someone to talk to. And then the younger generation may or may not want that. And, but they may or may want other options. Um, so, you know, and that's, that's totally fair because that's, you know, the world is very different from how younger generations are growing up versus what, you know, older generations have experienced. And so when, when you take all that into account, how does your messaging, the delivery of your messaging change? Um, is that is that enough? Is that something that's significantly thought about um, when you are sort of talking to these different um, age groups of people and, and different mindsets of people? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I think mindset is more important than age in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. One enduring truth. One enduring truth. Uh, a, a sort of a, a that I would say transcends generations. Is everybody uh, wants an in-person human touch everybody does everyone wants a tactile experience in retail to some to some extent it's why amazon opened up physical stores because they recognize that you know it doesn't matter um if you're 75 or 25 everyone wants a human experience now um younger generation still intends to and wants to walk into banking centers, but they want to do so for different reasons. They want to do so so that an expert can help them just kind of unpack how to think about their lives and their financials and things like that. So that's why they that's why they want to visit and they want an in-person experience. And we've seen that. Older people want to go in because they're creatures of habit in some cases. I'll point to my mom who, you know, I've I've tried to get uh, enrolled into digital banking, mm -hmm. but you know, as a as a immigrant Greek woman who never grew up with technology, um, she's never been comfortable with it. Right, and for her, having a piece of paper is what what she wants. Now, at the same time, she also has an iPad and goes on Facebook and does those other things. But for certain things, habit has kind of taken taken root, so to speak. So uh, it's just. It, 
but it does, it's not necessarily bound to age because there are a lot of older Canadians who mm-hmm. feel that uh, I don't really need to go into a banking center to pay a bill. I can do this off my phone. So uh, I would, we try to follow the mindset more than we try to follow necessarily the sort of birth certificate um, and, and adjust, you know, adjust our, our business model to, to meet those needs in that way. And what, what's interesting, I think about what you said is that, you know, your mom, right. She, I'm sure that there was a point in time and, and I know this with my parents as well at a point in time, the idea that they could log on to, you know, their Facebook account and use WhatsApp and all these different technology tools from their iPad or, or whatever the case, their tablet in bed and do these things or pay a bill online or do an e-transfer that was incredibly foreign to them while it was maybe um, something that was seemed sort of a natural progression in uh, you know younger people's lives, but but they have adopted that, and and a lot of people have sort of taken that on. As technology changes, though, you know the usage of it changes, and the adoption of it, the, the rate of adoption between these generations is also going to change. Um, you know how does a how does a, a bank sort of stay ahead of that curve and start to predict and forecast sort of this is the new wave. This is what, you know, is about to happen. And we need to sort of get ahead of it. Like, for example, TikTok, people have been talking about TikTok for a very long time. Before TikTok became incredibly, you know, this massive behemoth that it is now. And it could have been in part because of, you know, COVID-19 and everybody staying at home and looking for entertainment and whatever the reasons may be, it has sort of picked up steam you know, within younger generation. And then again, older generation very, very quickly. So how does you know, how does a bank really stay ahead of these changes in the way different generations are going to be adopting um, new forms of technology and new forms and, and ways that they think about banking? Yeah, it's, it's simply by building your bank mm-hmm. and building your service around consumer needs. Mm-hmm. Digital adoption spiked up big time during the COVID crisis. Why? Because my banking center is currently closed and it's too far for me to go to another banking center. Um, I'm applying for uh, a government benefit, which if I am enrolled in digital banking, I can receive my money in three business days. So you think about the extent of this crisis, the need to get access to your money more quickly. All of a sudden, this technology was fit for purpose for a need that emerged. So it's really difficult, uh, not impossible, but difficult to predict how needs will change. Because if you're wrong, you start building technology for needs that don't exist. So, you know, I remember launching a product. It was called, uh, uh, I'm not even sure if I can talk about this. I'll, I'll, I'll try to be cryptic about it. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, remember lo- lo- I remember launching a product that was a fabric care product, right? That we mm-hmm. thought it would help you, it would help you uh, eliminate ironing. And oh. so if you ask somebody, hey, do you like ironing clothes? No. Okay, well, here's something that'll help you not have to iron clothes. Great. Uh, I love it in concept. And then you go and you put it out there and all of a sudden, well, you have to kind of still manipulate the garment. You got to tug it and smooth it with your hands. Now your hands are wet. Well, I, I know I don't like ironing, but I know I don't like this. So let's say for argument's sake, someone says, hey, wouldn't it be great if we built uh, a TikTok uh, video into our banking uh, application because people like TikTok and that's an emerging need and people need to be entertained. Okay. So you invest in that and it turns out it's a bad idea. Mm-hmm. It ruins the experience. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about something like TikTok. It, it's not about TikTok. It's like people like to be entertained right? and people like a little, people liked, people used to like telling jokes. It would take, you know, 20 seconds to tell a joke and make someone laugh. And people are like, no one tells jokes anymore. Yes, they do. They make TikTok videos or, uh, or they write tweets. People always tell jokes. I mean, follow anyone clever on, on Twitter. People are telling jokes all the time and arguably way more than they used to. So it's just that technology has now filled that need in a different way. So to me, I think it's staying in touch with needs. I, I don't believe, uh, people's needs, their really most basic needs change. How we fulfill those needs, though, can change. So the ingenuity of technology recognizes, hey, you know, people people need to laugh 
well, here's an interesting, neat new way to make them laugh. I'm going to put a filter over this picture uh, that makes you look like a dog. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to send your, your face to somebody else with a dog face. People used to dress up and do that physically. People used to put on wigs and masks and stuff. And now you can do that with technology. So I believe that um, technology needs to meet people's needs. And people who are great at it understand what people want. You know, we talked about Apple and Android. In the 90s, personal computing was about a choice between an IBM uh, Windows machine or an Apple, uh, you know, a Mac. And, you know, I think Apple personal computers were in the low single digits in terms of market share because people believed, um, you know, computing is serious business and these aren't toys. Right. And Apple believed that computing should improve people's lives and they should enjoy their life through personal computing. Look at, look at what, what emerged as the most, uh, as the most uh, true of those two ideologies today. Right. So when we're, when we're talking about sort of these enduring brand value or enduring values, human values that we have, you know, like the telling of the jokes and, and how technology has just changed the way in which we do those things. Um, you know, what are some of the enduring values people hold about their, their banks? Because I feel like right now there's risk is a, is a, is a major word, you know, amongst the words like vector and crisis and unprecedented <laughs> risk is a huge sort of topic that everyone is talking about. And a lot of brands and advertisers are afraid to take different risks, especially right now. But generally speaking, um, you know, matching those the risks of a, of a product or a, a shift in brand messaging to sort of align with uh, consumer values and what they value in banking. You know, how does a bank really go about truly understanding the nuances, the, the deepness of, of of how consumers value their banks and what they're valuing about their banking experience. A, a whole bunch of different ways. I think we're always collecting data on how our clients feel about us. Uh, risk in a bank is interesting because risk is what underpins uh, uh, a bank's strength. Right. You lend money to people. Uh, are they likely to pay it back? Mm -hmm. You know, so banks, banks are very, uh, when it comes to risk, I think what banks do is they take risks uh, by lending money. What people want is they want banks to take take a risk on them because they believe in themselves. And so now, I suppose in the past, it used to be quite a binary relationship. You know, if you don't pay back, I foreclose. Um, today, we have so many ways to determine, you know, how much risk can I take on a on you as a client? So for example, if you say, I want a $100,000 credit card limit, a bank would say, you know, based on what we think we know about someone like you, you may want to start with something like this. And you you come to a mutual agreement in a very uh, friendly way on how much risk you're going to take on a client. Uh, people expect banks to be reliable. People expect if they want, if they have to pay their rent on a Friday, the same day they got paid their paycheck, they expect the bank to receive that paycheck and to release those dollars so they can pay their landlord. They expect that. If for any reason they can't because the bank hours at the branch are too restrictive or God forbid your technology fails them and they can't e-transfer their landlord this month's rent, that is a huge source of frustration for people. So you have to be reliable. The other thing people expect from their banks is they believe, they believe that when they entrust their lives and their money with a bank, they believe banks should be grateful for their business. And the banks that are grateful for their business um, are the ones that create better relationships with them. Um, it can be very easy to get into a transactional mode, right? Mm -hmm. Deposits come in, the payments go out. You know, you borrow the money, you pay it back. Transaction, transaction, transaction. Where you keep customers is in those moments in between. And so every bank has a mortgage. Every bank has rules. Every bank has deposit account. Every bank has the same stuff, mm -hmm. but not every bank serves people the same way all the time. And the bank that figures out and takes its massive complex business, 
all of its touch points, human and technological, and makes them line up so perfectly uh, that the experience is consistently great, will win. I'll point to Apple again. Whether it's interacting with them online, you can get them on the phone to actually talk you through your tech, or you can go to one of their stores. It's the same brand. It's the same personality. It's the same thing. They have been able to stitch straight through the line um, the virtually the same experience. And it's not about the look. Yes, they look the same. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's that's important and it's it helps with the whole experience, but it feels the same. Okay. It's why McDonald's is a great brand. You can buy a quarter pounder in Kitchener, Ontario, or in Paris, France. Uh, although I think it's called the Royale with cheese there, according to the Pulp Fiction, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, dialogue between uh, Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson. Right. But it's it's the same thing, right. right? That's what, and it's good. So, so when you're talking about like, for instance, in, in the Canadian market recently, we've seen you know the the sort of uh, prominence of challenger banking, um, which is you know, as we had spoken before, it's banking, it's banking, but delivered differently. So when you're talking about sort of a brand personality, that brand relationship, oftentimes with technology and and exclusively our relationship with technology can sometimes seems very transactional. It's very, you know, this is what I do here. This is what you provide me through, you know, this tool. How in the world of challenging challenger banking, where it's mobile app only banking, how does a brand sort of keep their their values, keep their sort of relationship and, and build that personality. And, and I guess where does digital and, and marketing sort of mix in, into that? Well, I mean, they, digital and marketing, they deliver the service. So challenger banks, they deliver a service that's fit for purpose mm-hmm. for their customer base. So you look at brands like, you know, Tangerine and Simply Financial, uh, you know, Simple, you know, and some of these others like EQ bank, they deliver a fit for purpose, you know, service for, for their customers. What's interesting is again, it's not binary. There are a lot of people who are both simply financial clients and CIBC clients mm-hmm. because they, they serve they serve different purposes, you know, in, in some of these smaller uh, you know, challenger banks, it's often, you know, you'll get a mix of people who use it as their regular daily bank. And you'll also get a bunch of uh, fairly cash rich, affluent people parking big cash because the interest rates are pretty good there. Mm-hmm. But they also have perhaps wealth management relationships with other big institutions. So what these things are doing is, as it is, uh, as it is in any category, you look around our, you know, the marketplace today, they're getting in, they're able to distribute a service very quickly. In some cases for, for, you know, for customers who are saying, this is my only bank and other cases for people who are saying, yeah, this will, this will be one of my circle of brands that I choose to consume a long time ago. I mean, you only had a few choices for breakfast cereal or beer or a certain few choices for automobiles. So these challenger banks are doing nothing, nothing different than what many other categories have experienced, which is other brands come in. Meet other needs, and people bring them into their circle. So, marketing and digital, you know, they they play a role because you can get to market really quickly now as a challenger, particularly in banking with the digital universe. You don't have to build expensive bricks and mortar. Uh, but you know, the question I have about them is, what is their upside? Because eventually, to grow, you need to proliferate your offering, and then you start to look a little bit more like the big banks beside you. Right. So. I guess sort of, uh, you know, to kind of wrap this up, what what does the future then? Because, uh, you know, you had mentioned that, you know, as things develop and change, they need to proliferate their offering. So what does the future of banking with technology, with the marketing mix, with the data that we're, we have now have access to, what does that look like uh, in the next five years? Great question. I think, um, you know, I talked about how people really want a personal interaction. I believe we're going to find uh, and develop technology that gives you both service at a distance and a human interaction. You know, today, you know, uh, 
we were one of the first in Canada, I'm going to brag about CIBC, to, mm-hmm. to uh, launch a remote mortgage origination process. So you can get your mortgage remotely, entirely. I mean, yeah. that was, uh, and we, we really accelerated that to market and we got it there. It became very useful for people who needed to re- really close their mortgage, buy their homes urgently at a time like the COVID crisis, uh, rather than having to go in and you know, fuss with papers at a banking center and things like that. So um, that personal interaction was still there, but you could do it at a distance. Um, obviously, the whole big, uh, there's so many memes about Zoom calls and things like that today, <laughs> right? Um, think about how Zoom, which was a, 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 a kind of a, uh, created all these awkward sort of conference call moments, mm-hmm. became how people socialize. And so, Sometimes you get you, you accelerate into these new norms through these little crises, and it's it it sometimes takes either the advent of an exceptional technology or an outstanding circumstance to accelerate people into a new way of being. Because people are stubbornly creatures of habit. Mm-hmm. Why would I do this trinket if I don't have to? Well, now I have to, and now I've done it. Well, now I kind of like it, so it's going to become part of my habit. You know. It's one of two things: either the environment changes, and and technology is going to have a, have a challenge to go and meet the needs of the environment, or as what happens with so many of these great disruptors in our world, somebody is going to have a vision, and they're going to build something, and they're going to say this is a better way to do things, and they're going to work that into through, through to the marketplace that way. The banking will have to change, and we'll have to continue to provide uh, service, you know, in a mul- multiple different ways. But I think the biggest thing that can accelerate the next, the biggest uh, innovation that banks could and should come up with is how to leverage technology to enhance the relationship building and interpersonal interactions that I described earlier that are those daily brilliant moments that build relationships between the bank and its client. Wow. Well, this has been um, incredibly enlightening for myself and uh, inspiring, actually. So um, I just, you know, want to thank you so much for your time. I think this has been incredibly informative and, um, you know, really, really appreciate you taking your time to to jump on our podcast here. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to my babble. (laughs) No babble at all. It was amazing. I'm really, uh, I was really happy to sort of hear some of the human elements of banking. I thought that was a that was something I, I don't think a lot of brands are thinking about as much anymore, but it was great to hear. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks. For, I hope you have a good day. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode today. If you like what you heard, it would mean a world to us if you do these three things. Subscribe to the show and leave us a review. If you're listening to this and know someone who would find this episode valuable, please share it with them. And finally, please share it on LinkedIn. If you have questions or feedback or would love to learn how agencies or brands work with StackItApp, find us at www.stackitapp.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.